Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So, your child comes out wearing a mismatched outfit, and it is time to go to church. Like, go time. Imagine the scenario. Or your teenager comes to you, and they want to dye their hair purple. Or, you know, sometimes we don't always agree politically, and you have members of your family who see things very differently. Maybe you can't agree on paint colors. Maybe your siblings who can't agree on how to care for aging parents. There are all different scenarios that we face. How about family vacation? You know how that can go sometimes. There are all different battles in life. Life is filled with conflict. And we've probably heard the wisdom that you have to choose your battles, right? You got to choose your battles. You can't fight them all. And see, here's the problem. We know we have to choose our battles. The hard part is choosing which ones to fight and which ones not to fight over. There are some things in life they're not, they're not worth fighting for. But there are other things in life that are absolutely worth fighting for. And for the follower of Jesus, for the believer, our faith is the most precious thing that we have. And it's worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. And that's the message of the book of Jude. We're going to start this quick three-week journey through the book of Jude. I have never preached through this book. I've never taught a Bible study through it. I'm curious how many of you have heard a legitimate sermon series on the book of Jude. Not just quotes a verse here and there, but gone through the book of Jude before. Anybody? There were only two in first service. So that means I can go wherever I want with this. And you guys are going to go along with me, right? The book of Jude is the fourth or sorry, the fifth shortest book of the Bible by word count in the original language. A lean 461 words. Anybody want to take the pop quiz and guess the four books of the Bible that are shorter than Jude? Any takers? I'll give you I'll give you a hint. Two of them are really close by second and third John. Okay. And then Philemon, and then the one in the Old Testament. Now, I couldn't, I couldn't guess this one. I had to look it up. Obadiah. Obadiah. Some of you were like, is that even a book of the Bible? I haven't read that one before. So, Jude, it's a short book. The author wastes no time communicating his message with urgency. Just in the first four verses here, we get the author, the audience, the purpose of the book, and also he begins building the foundation for the solution to the problem that he lays out in his purpose in writing. So really quickly, a little bit of background here. The author and audience of the letter. The author is Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. Jude is short for Judas. Judas was a brother of James. James here is almost certainly the brother of Jesus. So it was one of the brothers of Jesus, half-brother technically. Uh, and so we have here from Ma- uh, Mark 6 and Matthew 13. Isn't this the carpenter referring to Jesus? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? So this is the Jude we're talking about here. Judas, the brother of 
Jesus. He's writing to an unidentified church, a group of churches who are likely suffering persecution based on the approximate date of the letter, which is the mid-60s. It's also written to a rather universal audience. He addresses his letter to those who've been called, who are loved by God, who are kept by Jesus Christ. And of course, that applies to us today. So I hope that we will see that this ancient letter is absolutely a letter that is written to us today in the church. Now, he gives us the purpose of the letter. Not every book or letter or piece of communication explicitly states the purpose for which it was written, but this one does. He tells his audience that originally he had intended to write a sort of general letter of encouragement, just sharing uh, the good news of the gospel with them as we get in many of the letters of the New Testament. But instead, he's directed by the Spirit. He was urged to write a letter of warning, a letter of caution, an intense call to defend the, gate, the, defend the faith against the theological and moral corruption that has been brought about by a group of false teachers who have infiltrated the church. So the attack is from within, people they would have known and perhaps even trusted. And we know the church has always battled new teachings and interpretations, ideas that have threatened to corrupt her biblical foundations. There's nothing new under the sun, but it is the task of every generation to do what Jude says here, to contend for the faith, to fight for the authentic gospel, to fight against old and new tactics of the evil one to lead people astray. Now, as we talk about this idea of fighting for the faith, we're not talking about fighting with other people. We're not talking about fighting to maintain your salvation, right? As, as we're going to go on to see here, we're a people who have been called, who are kept by God, who are loved by God out of his covenant faithfulness. It's not fighting to maintain your salvation. What we're fighting here to do is to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received, to be faithful to God, knowing that he is always faithful to us. But we can be pulled away. We can be pulled aside. We can be pulled away from a life where God is at the center. And that's what Judah is talking about here. He's saying we can be pulled away by false teaching, teachings that obscure the clarity and the beauty of the authentic gospel. He's talking about the reality that in this sinful world, we have to go to battle. Paul uses this language that we are in the middle of a spiritual battle and therefore we have to put on the armor of God. That's the language that we're talking about here when it says to contend for the faith. So in this letter, he tells us that we need to know how to contend for the faith. The word translated here, contend, it comes from a Greek word that developed into the English word agonize. Agonize. It means to struggle. It means to fight. We have to contend to maintain this faith and hold to this core gospel. I think in one of the threats or one of the, one of the dangers that we have as Christians is that we can so easily look out there, whatever out there is. We can say the threat to our faith is out there. It's the world. It's, it's media. It's other voices. It's people who disagree with me, people who have different values. And that can be a source of pulling us away from God. But what Jude's talking about here is an internal battle. It's people within the church People who would have called the Christian faith their faith, and yet they've been led astray and they're deceiving the church and they're distorting the church. I think some of them are probably doing it, not even realizing they're doing it. And others are doing it on purpose. These false teachers are leading people away 
from God. And so as we talk about this battle, we must understand it's an internal battle. It's a corruption from within the church, and it's a battle that's going on in all of our hearts. We're involved in the problem. We have to be involved in the solution. We must contend for the faith that has once and for all been entrusted to the saints. Yes, our world, our environment is part of the problem. But let's not forget this famous triad, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? So we can't just blame all our problems. Well, you know, it's the world. It's worldliness. No, that, that includes us. It includes our enemy, the devil. It includes our own flesh. You are always involved every time you sin. Let's not forget that. And in fact, the person that lies to you more than anybody else is probably you. You realize that? The person that deceives you is you. You know yourself better than anybody else. It's a battle. So how do we engage in this battle? Let's remember that it's a spiritual battle, that we have a real enemy. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, as he's leading up to the armor of God, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Right? This is that language of contention, contend for the faith. It was often used in military contexts, an agonizing struggle. And then he goes on to say, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's a real spiritual battle, and our primary enemy is Satan. And that's why we have the cool snake image. Okay, we had a really cool bird last series. We're really into the critters right now. Uh, and so I just, I love this snake because Satan is at the core of this deception and he's using people, but it's his power that is working against us. So we need to know how to recognize it and fight against it. So how do we do it? Well, the foundation for contending for the faith actually comes in the beginning of the letter, it feels like it's just sort of an introduction, but it was important. And he says, Jude, and describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. That's interesting. He's Jesus' brother. He drives, describes himself as a brother of James, but not as a brother of Jesus. It's kind of interesting. Well, if you, you realize in the Gospels, the brothers of Jesus, they were part of the crowd that didn't get him, that rejected him. They didn't see it. And we're not told in the narrative, but at some point, Jude has come to be a follower of Jesus. He's his brother, but perhaps even more than that, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, right? Because Jesus said, what's even more important than your biological connection and family is your spiritual family. And Jude recognizes that his identity is now changed. He is more than a biological brother of Jesus. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. And so we have been bought with a price. Our lives have been redeemed toward freedom, but not free to do whatever we wish. Free to serve Christ and his kingdom. We're described here as being called. We're a called people who have been called by God. We are loved by him. That's his unconditional love based on his covenant faithfulness. We are protected by God. We're kept by him. We're preserved in our salvation. We have security. We can trust that God will preserve us. So again, we're not talking about questioning our faith. Jude is clear. We're called. We're kept by God. We're not contending to earn or maintain our salvation. 
He's saying, though, that the path of following Jesus over and over again, the New Testament says, you're called and you're in Christ, and yet it says, live in such a way. This is our sanctification, right? It's becoming the people that actually look like what we've already been declared true of us in our justification, right? You are in Christ, you are saved, and yet we are being saved. In real time, we're becoming more like Jesus. That is where the fight and the struggle exists. And it begins by knowing who you are in Christ. We also have to know what you have in Christ. And he gives us just a quick summary here. There are many, many blessings. And he characterizes it with this triad, mercy, peace, and love. As you fight the good fight, don't forget there is abundant mercy because you will fail. You will get off path. You will get off the trail. You will fail. You will turn away. But there's abundant mercy. The mercy of God. Peace. The idea of wholeness. The sense that it is well with my soul because of the work of Jesus. Because I have peace with God, I can live at peace with my neighbors. This is the peace of God. And abundant love. Throughout this letter, 25 verses, five different times he reminds God's people that they're loved by God. You are loved by God. And sometimes we can get into the intense language of the Bible and we can say, okay, it's a battle. You got to get out there and do it. And we can forget that, but that it's based on the love and the mercy of God. So it is, it is both. It is a struggle. And yet it's also resting in who we are. We have to know who we are. We have to know what we have in Jesus in order to contend for the faith But then he goes on in verse 4, and I think this is really uh, the heart of the letter, is that he says we have to know how to recognize false gospels. This is critical. We need to know the gospel, but it's also important for us to, to be able to recognize these false gospels. And Jude's primary opponents here were what are known as antinomians. That's just, they were against the law. They believed that because... God has saved us, and because God is gracious and merciful, we can live however we want. They didn't want rules. They didn't want anybody telling them how to live their lives. They just wanted to presume upon the grace of God, get their get-out-of-hell-free card, have their fire insurance plan, whatever language you want to use to capture it. They wanted God to just bless however they wanted to live their life. They wanted to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't have to live according to any of this stuff anymore, because God is a God who is good and gracious and merciful. And that's true. God is love. He is, he is kind. He's patient. He is merciful. But yet he is holy. He is righteous. He cannot, he will not leave the world in its current condition. There must be justice. We have to see all the different aspects of God. And they were only willing to bless those parts or those aspects of God that they liked, that were convenient for them. And so it is in our world today. So I want to go through a a list of a couple of different false teachings that I think are prominent in our day. And there were versions of them, certainly even at this time. Uh, Jude highlights a few of these, but I want to expand upon the list here because I think it's important to understand these false gospels because they can slip into our thinking and our practice in subtle ways. So the first one is universalism. 
And universalism basically says that uh, all paths lead to God. But there's a sneaky version of it where there are those who will say, okay, I believe in Jesus. I like Jesus. In fact, I believe even that Jesus is my way to salvation. But I'm not going to be so arrogant as to presume that there are not other ways to salvation. So this is a person who will claim Christ, but yet deny that he is the only way. Jude points that out. He says they deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. Nothing new under the sun. But again, we will hear this sort of thing. And the reason why that doesn't work is because you're basically saying, I'm placing my trust in Jesus. And yet Jesus himself said, I am the only way to the father. So you're placing your trust in someone that you're now also calling a liar. It doesn't work. So you cannot say Jesus is my way and he is a way, but he's not the only way. It doesn't work. That's a false gospel. There are other versions of this as well. But the next one I'll talk about is syncretism. And syncretism is when someone will will believe the core of the faith, but they attach to it. Syncretism, they, they, they synthesize, they try to attach things to the faith and add things on that are incompatible with the core message of the Christian faith. So again, it's kind of sneaky because someone will say, yes, I'm a Christian, and yet they want to add things to that behaviors often, but even beliefs that are incompatible with the very faith syncretism or they'll say uh, i believe in these certain aspects of christianity but i like some of these teachings of buddha and i like certain of tenets of islam they'll kind of do a choose your own adventure and sort of put together their own custom religion right have it your way but this doesn't work because the different worldviews and different religions teach very different things about who God is and about who we are and about the nature of salvation. So again, universalism doesn't work and syncretism doesn't work because someone who says all paths lead to God or someone who says, you know what, all religions at the end of the day teach the same thing, that doesn't respect or honor the true nature of any of the religions because they don't teach the same thing. Do not buy that lie. And I can tell you this, no other, I'm not an expert in world religions. I've studied them a little bit. There's a lot I don't know, but I am sure that nobody else is teaching a gospel of grace based on the fact that God entered down into time and space, bore our shame and our burden and our penalty in order to offer us salvation as a free gift. You're not going to get that anywhere else besides the Bible and Christianity. That's a very different answer to the question, how can a person be saved than other faiths? It doesn't work. Universalism is not true. Syncretism. You cannot add to the gospel things that are incompatible with it. It doesn't work. Third version is moralism. One, one, one way this look is, is through legalism. They're just simply teaching that you can do enough good that you can earn salvation. But there's also what we might call a social gospel, which which takes the social workings out of the gospel and actually replaces the gospel itself. So the the whole project is not about salvation, which then leads to good works. The whole point is the good works themselves. And so we quit talking about the gospel and we just talk about being a good person. And we talk about the ethical teachings of Jesus. We talk about a love your neighbor as yourself. 
which is true. But the first thing you need is a transforming experience of your very nature so that you can actually live in the way of Jesus. And moralism replaces the gospel and the moral project itself becomes the gospel. Fourth is libertinism. And this is what I've alluded to. This is the antinomians. It's the opposite of legalism. Instead of trying to earn your salvation by being good, you say, nope, doesn't matter how you live. Just live however you want. And we'll just presume upon the grace of God. That's not the message of the gospel either. Very common in our world today. And the final one I called positivism, which is not really usually used as a theological term. It is technically a a philosophy, Um, but I've imported it here under the broader idea. This is where we would see things like the prosperity gospel. And the reason why I use positivism is because a lot of people would would recognize the prosperity gospel and say, nope, not that's not, I reject that. But yet there are aspects of it, I think, that can creep in. So the prosperity gospel says uh, that God only wants to bless you, that he will always heal you. He will bless you. He will give you wealth. Uh, It's somewhat contingent upon your faith and your ability to realize those things. We have the name it and claim it theology where you are, are calling down things from heaven. And it's like God has good things for you. And if you would just pray hard enough and buy that lottery ticket, he will bless you. Or like there are there are jet planes waiting for you in heaven. You guys think I'm making this up? This is. This is true. Like people believe this. There are jet planes waiting for you, private planes. There's one with your name on it in heaven. If you just call it down and have enough faith. And a lot of us can recognize that and say, that's not the gospel. But yet there's an aspect of this positivism that can creep in because I think many Christians sort of assume that if, if they're a good Christian, whatever that means, however you define that, if you, if you, if you go to church enough and you tithe, that you expect certain good outcomes in your life. But those things aren't necessarily guaranteed. In fact, we're told the opposite. We're told that our world will be filled with battles. It will be filled with hardship and troubles. And so this positivism, and, and there's a version of it where even there are those who preach and who preach from the Bible, but yet they conveniently avoid all the hard topics. And they don't talk about sin. They only talk about God's love and God's mercy. And they may preach the gospel, but yet they're, they're leaving out important pieces because they won't talk about sin. I've told you guys this before. One time I had somebody that uh, criticized my preaching and they said, you talk about sin too much. And I took it as a compliment Uh, because it's kind of a big deal. It's in there. You have to talk about it, but not if you're just focused on positivism, right? Many versions of this today. And Jude is warning the church, beware of those who deceive the church, who distort God's truth, who deny our Lord altogether. And they are among you. They will, they will claim Christianity. They are within churches. They are standing in Christian pulpits. And yet, they can be like termites, secretly working, eating away at the foundation, eating away an important infrastructure. Matthew 7, Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. By the fruit of their life. Well, you know, that pastor, he's really effective and many people are coming to his church. He's a complete jerk. Well, you know, we'll just excuse that. Because, you know, he's really effective. Well, you better watch the fruit of someone's life. And again, no one's, no one's perfect. But it says, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. 
to be false prophets. Jude says, beware of those who deny our Lord. And some of them, what they deny is not his deity. It's not his personhood or his death or resurrection. In fact, some of them will have some good doctrine, but what they're denying is his lordship. That's these antinomians. They're denying the lordship of Jesus. They don't want the gospel to place any ethical commands upon them. They don't want to have any expectations there of how we live. They want to be a law unto themselves, accountable to no one. But the gospel calls us to surrender to the lordship of Jesus. It requires more than just right beliefs. It requires a reformed practice. Empowered by grace, empowered by the Spirit. Let's not forget the last sermon series just because we've moved on. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. And yet we see that, that our doctrine and our morality and our practice of faith are closely tied together and one can lead to another. So bad doctrine can lead to bad practice. But it can also work the other way. Sometimes people will get involved in sin and immorality. And then they'll change their doctrine. They'll change their reading of scripture because they don't want to face the fact that maybe they actually need to change their behavior instead. Fighting for the faith, contending for the faith, it's a call of absolute surrender, a call to come and die that Christ will live in us and through us. So how do we... Contend for the faith. Well, we must defend and deliver the authentic gospel. It's important for us to understand and recognize these false gospels, but we also need to have a deep grasp of the authentic gospel. He says, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. This language here of once for all, it implies that it doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. And that's what we're doing. That's what these deceivers are doing is they're adding to it. They're taking away from it. But we must know that it is not our gospel to change or to reinterpret. Now, the circumstances into which we are speaking this gospel truth are constantly changing. But the gospel message itself does not change. It is God's gospel. It is his truth. It's not our truth. We've been entrusted it. We are the stewards of it, but we are to to steward that message, right? And not drop the ball. Don't, Don't fumble it. Take it and share it with others. We've been entrusted to it, so we dare not change it. We dare not alter it. We also dare not keep it for ourselves. It has been entrusted to God's people. And I believe that sharing the gospel will also reinforce it in our own heart, in our lives. It's real power so that we will experience that and know the difference between the authentic gospel and any false substitute. So one of the important tasks that we've been called to as pastors, as elders of the church, is that we are to shepherd the flock. We're to protect the church from false teaching, to give you the real deal, to feed you the food of God, but also to help you to understand and discern what is what is right and what is wrong? What is false and what is true? And so I have a particular warning for us today in the time in which we live as it comes to these things. We're living in a time in history when we have more access to information than we've ever had. By a long shot. And that is an incredible 
privilege and that is an incredible responsibility. To be honest with you, there's times when I think I wish, I kind of wish I'd live in a different era. Now it would have its own problems, but you know, when I just think about the information age we live in and the challenge that we have to discern truth in the midst of just all the noise and all the information that we have out there. How do we see what is true? So I, there's a book that I just finished reading. It's called The Wisdom Pyramid. The Wisdom Pyramid. And um, he basically, his main idea is he takes the old food pyramid. You guys remember that? I don't even know if that's still in vogue anymore or not, or like the right thing. But there was the food pyramid, and he uses that applied to wisdom. And he says that God's word is at the foundation of that pyramid. And that there are other things that, that we can look to, that we can gain wisdom from, but that has to be the foundation. At the very top of the pyramid, which is not necessarily bad for you, but used sparingly, right, in the food pyramid. And that's where things like the internet and blogs and podcasts and all that, again, not bad, but we have to discern carefully. And he says the problem is that our diet is we eat a lot of the top and not much the bottom. Right, which makes you sick and you're not, you're not healthy in the food pyramid. So in the wisdom pyramid, we're, we're eating too much of the wrong sources of information to find wisdom. So here's, here's his introduction. It hooked me. I don't know if it'll hook you, but he says, Our world has more and more information, but less and less wisdom. More data, less clarity. More stimulation, less synthesis. More distraction and less stillness. More pontification and less pondering. More opinion and less research. More speaking and less listening. More to look at and yet less to see. More amusements and less joy. And this is, this is a good line here. There is more, but we are less and we all feel it. Is it true? There's more, but we are less and we all feel it. He says our eyes are strained, our brains overstimulated, Our souls are weary. Yes? We're living in an epistemological crisis. Wow. How can we flourish in a world like this? How can we fortify our immunity and be healthy amidst a contagion of foolishness whose spread shows no sign of stopping? How can Christians become storehouses of wisdom in this era when more and more sickly people will be looking for a cure? We need a better diet of knowledge and better habits of information intake. We need to flip the pyramid. We need to have regular intake of the timeless wisdom of God's word so that we're not pulled aside. So we're not, so we don't go stray. So we don't allow these false gospels to come in and corrupt the foundation of the true life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. This was Jude's warning to the church. It's a battle. You have to contend. It takes work. It takes effort. We have to filter this wisdom, but we want to be wise. And we want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must contend for the faith. We must know our foundation. We must know the real gospel and and know a substitute when we see it. Would you join me as we pray about these things? Father, we need your wisdom. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to live faithfully in our day and time. And God, we believe that you have called us 
for now, to live in this present situation. And so we believe that you will empower us to live as your people. God, help us to be discerning. Help us to be wise about the sources of information in our lives, to be more careful, to be more discerning, and to always be looking to your word as the plumb line, as the foundation, as the cornerstone. God, would you help us? Lord, as this battle is is internal, it's in our hearts. God, and we want to be wise. We want to live in a way that that is true according to the way you've created us to live. God, so make us wise for your glory and for our good. Amen.